0: Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the anointing of the spirit of truth to come and illuminate your words today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So uh, we're talking about the cross. I want to kind of... Hopefully it doesn't turn off on me. Okay. I want to continue in that vein. Um, yeah, we'll just leave it there. Let's look at some verses of... Uh, let's look at one passage. Actually, let, let's look at two. John chapter... John's Gospel, I think it's chapter 2. Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple during the time of the Passover. This is important. So in verse uh, 33 it says, uh, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all uh, from the temple courts, but sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who sold the doves, he says, uh, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples, I lost my place. Shoot. What verse was I at? I looked up and lost my place. Nobody knows. (laughs) You weren't in the right, John. Okay, to those who sold doves, he said, get out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this, to cleanse the temple? And then he says, here's the sign, destroy this temple... And I will raise it again in three days. But they did not understand that the temple that he spoke of was his body. Got it? Then come with me to Matthew's gospel, in verse uh, I'm sorry, chapter twenty seven. And verse thirty two as they were going out they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they crucified him. Then jump down with me to verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness was over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those were standing there, they heard this, and they said, He is calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine and vinegar, and put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now, the part that we skipped over there, I didn't actually intend to skip over, but they take him to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and they crucify him. And it says others walked past him and mocked him, saying to him, here is the man who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So you find in all of the gospel accounts, the crucifixion of Jesus connected directly to the temple. Very important. Uh, we've missed it. Because if Jesus is the Lamb of God, if He's being sacrificed, particularly at Passover in the Second Temple, it's interesting how the uh, Passover feast evolved politically. Because if you remember, the Passover feast was to be celebrated in your home originally, right? In Egypt, celebrated in the home, the blood put over the doorposts, and it was one lamb per family, but it evolved into a sort of a political centralization of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem, where now you had to go up, up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, so you didn't have it in your home anymore. You had to go up to Jerusalem, and the lamb had to be slain in the temple. So for a Jewish person, temple imagery, you, you couldn't even think about the cross at all without temple imagery symbolism and significance and so jesus in case you didn't get it he connects it directly in john destroy this temple and i will raise it up in 3 days speaking about his passion right everybody walks by and they say this man said he you know could rebuild the temple in 3 days so my point is that embedded in the story, more than anything you've heard from Western preaching or Western evangelicalism or Western theology of the cross, there is embedded in it temple theology. Temple symbolism. And I've never heard a message where understanding the cross was coming out of the matrix of symbols and imagery and meaning that was central to the temple or the body. But when Jesus dies, what happens? What happens? The veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The book of Hebrews, which is also full of temple imagery when it's talking about the blood of Christ, says the veil was His Flesh. Got it? So what I want to do today is I want to take a temple look or a mystical look, if you will, at the cross. Saying that we can look at it from various different perspectives and angles. And so what does the word mystical mean? Let's define it because it can mean a lot of different things to different people. It comes from the word mystery. So something is not mystical if it does not have a mystery to it. <laughs> A mystery is not something that you can't solve or you can't understand. By its very nature, it is something that you're invited into to try to solve and understand. Mysticism also communicates... Now, you got to understand the term. And Paul uses the term mystery throughout the Bible, talking about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Jesus said that. Paul says, I've been made a steward of the mysteries. Paul talks about, behold, I tell you a mystery. God was manifested in the flesh, died justified in the spirit, raised up all that. Got it? In ancient Greece, in ancient Greco-Roman times, mysteries were also symbolic or they were communicated through symbols. So what we're going to do today is not take so much a literal look at the cross. If we're taking a mystical look at it, we have to look at the symbolism that's in it. Now before you get upset and say, well, God, he's just looking at it as symbolic, um, keep in mind God can do whatever he wants to and he's quite capable of communicating through symbols and imagery and picture and deep meaning specifically to touch deeper areas of our heart and our mind yes (laughs) but also you need to understand there were books that were left out of your Bibles now why they were left we can debate all day long one of the criteria that I was always told when we were trying to prove the, the uh, infallibility of the Bible, was that the councils, and by the way, it wasn't at the Council of Nicaea. This is driving me crazy. I see this all over Facebook and the internet. We got our Bible at the Council of Nicaea. No, Council of Nicaea was a generation or more before you got your Bible. Before they decided, here's the books that belong, and here's the books that don't belong. So when somebody says, at the Council of Nicaea, just know they don't know what they're talking about. Right there, they don't know what they're talking about. I don't know why I'm doing this. Council of Nicaea was to settle an Aryan controversy. But anyway, there were books that were left out. One of the things that they said was it had to be authored by an apostle. But here's the problem, saints. There were lots of books that were attributed to being authored by the apostles that didn't make it in your Bible. One of them is a book written by John. And John is distraught. During the crucifixion, and in this account, he's at the foot of the cross, but he leaves the foot of the cross, and the Spirit of Jesus, and this is one of the reasons they said, oh no, 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 this can't be right. The Spirit of Jesus appears to him and says that everything that's happening in the crucifixion is symbolic for the transformation of your own consciousness. That God is doing this through symbolism. So before you get all lathered up at me and say, you know, just understand there were communities, books that were attributed to the author, John, the apostle, who said the same thing. Now you can say, well, that was heresy because it didn't make it in. We can debate that all day long. I'm just trying to tell you it's not a new idea. Are you doing all right? So let's look at the cross, first of all. Now, there's a lot of debate. How many of you have friends or ever talked to Jehovah's Witnesses or came out of something with Jehovah's Witnesses? And one of the things that they get all lathered up about is that the Roman cross did not look like that. That Jesus probably died on a stake. Now, when you look at it historically, the Romans weren't that interested. I mean, you got to understand, it's not like... I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses to a degree are right because it's not like they had a sawmill or they went to Lowe's and picked up some two by fours because they were so concerned about the aesthetic nature of what they hung these criminals on. You understand what I'm saying? So they they didn't care if it was a tree, if it was a stake. The only thing that was important was that you suffered humiliation and painful death by being nailed to something that was wood. Historically, uh, it probably didn't look like that. Just like Jesus probably wasn't wearing a loincloth. Just saying. So, how did we end up with that? Now, it's funny because the same people who will trust a council four hundred years later to tell us which books are okay to read and which books aren't okay to read gets very suspicious of this same institution uh, that they don't know what they're doing if they change something historically, like maybe the shape of the cross, or it's interesting, even Jehovah's Witnesses use the same canon. They just retranslated it. They're gonna sit there and I don't know why am I picking on Jehovah's Witnesses? They're gonna sit there and tell you. <laughs> That the Catholic Church is vile and evil and wicked and all this, but then they use the same books that the Catholic Church said these are okay to use. Anyway, I'm sorry for picking on Jehovah's Witnesses. This isn't my purpose. But what I'm saying is there was a symbolic way that the church understood the cross, the death of Jesus, that they were communicating... It has nothing to do with saving you from the wrath of God. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. The whole idea of being saved from the wrath of God did not evolve or come about fully until John Calvin. And because the Puritans who came over to America were Calvinists and evangelicalism and Pentecostalism comes out of Puritanism, you became the heir of how they see it. But John Calvin was a map maker, not God. All right. So this symbol was important throughout antiquity. The symbol of the cross was important throughout antiquity. And in fact, when you read in your Bible that they put a mark in Ezekiel, one of the things Ezekiel is told is, um, or he sees in a vision, is this angel going out and marking the righteous on their foreheads. This is important, on their foreheads with a mark, the word there is actually a cross, or that symbol. It is actually a symbol that spoke to the ancient world about multiple dimensions or levels of reality and human experience. So that you have the vertical dimensions of above and beneath. And you have the horizontal dimensions which speaks of physical, your physical experience. So in other words, to look at this as a symbol is to say that what happens with you in physical dimensions and in physical reality... Happens on a horizontal plane. So you can go to and fro, but you can't go up and down. That which is above, the line which is above, and you'll see a lot of the older crosses, not this one, a lot of the older crosses were even shaped in other words most of the ones we see today the horizontal line is the i'm sorry the above line is shorter which may be symbolically and subconsciously designed to make you think that the higher regions are smaller and the lower regions are larger are you breathing but your, your more ancient ones were equilateral. You're tracking with me? So that to go above that line is to ascend. To go below that line is to descend. So if you look at the cross from that perspective then the people are all operating at a level beneath. Which is why Paul said the principalities and powers crucified the Lord of glory. Those that did not have the wisdom of God or the wisdom that comes from above. Those that were motivated by what James calls envy and selfish ambition, which is the wisdom that comes from beneath, which is also why... In some of the gospel accounts, you don't have any followers of Jesus at the foot of the cross. The only ones you have at the foot of the cross are mockers and soldiers and those who offer wine that is not new wine, but that is wine that is soured, which is also why Jesus refuses it. Because he's not going to drink something that comes from beneath. Because he's waiting for the new wine that comes from above. I will not drink this cup with you again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He said that at the Last Supper. So therefore, he wouldn't drink the wine that was offered to him, even though it would deaden the pain. Typically what would happen then is, if you look at the horizontal line, what comes across? So the central point is the heart. It's the balancing center. Get it? Now we're used to a presentation of the cross that goes something like this. Um... It's not changing for me. Maybe it is. Maybe it's just doing a really cool transition. Wasn't that cool? <laughs> How many of you seen something like this? Look at this. God is here. You are here. Down there is the fiery pit of hell. And the cross is the bridge over troubled waters, if I can borrow from Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> over troubled fires. Or the lake of fire, right? 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 So this is a gospel model. This is an understanding of the cross that is not Jewish, and it is not Hebraic, and it is not New Testament, and it is not early Christian. It is very Western, It is very Greek, and it is very platonic. If I say platonic, I'm not talking about you and your friend of the opposite gender that you don't have benefits with. (laughs) At least one person got it. Talk about a platonic relationship, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Plato and his philosophies. So it's important to understand that St. Augustine, in the 4th century, who shaped Western theology, particularly in the Latin school of the church, was a Neoplatonist. means he followed the philosophies of Plato, and he did not know Hebrew. So therefore, he interprets everything through a platonic lens, which was a dualistic lens. What do I mean by dualism? Actually that. Separation. God here, you here. Separated by this great chasm. Beneath is the pit of hell. And the only way to cross the chasm is the death of Christ. So you'll find that in all kinds of gospel literature because dualism is deeply embedded in the Western psyche and the Western subconscious, the idea of separation, alienation, particularly separation and alienation from God. There's a third meaning for the term mystic. The third meaning for the term mystic is one who seeks to experience union with God. Now, it's so funny the stuff I'll put on. Sometimes I put stuff on my Facebook page because I got hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christians from different cultures and persuasions that follow me. And sometimes I'm just doing research. Like I just throw something out there to see how people are going to comment because I want to see how people think. And one of the things that that provoked a huge response was I said, it's impossible to be separated from God. And man, did people respond to that. Why? Because I triggered something in the Western psyche. But listen to what David says in the book of Psalms. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, he says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. So anybody ever told you hell is separation from God has to deal with this verse. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light <laughs> and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, and the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So in other words, he's saying, there is no there is no separation. <laughs> you cannot be separated from God. <laughs> There is no separation. Where can I go from His presence? If I go to the heavens, there He's there. If I go into hell, He's there. But what you can do is attempt or convince yourself that like Adam, you can hide yourself from the presence of God. But even if you try to hide yourself from the presence of God, which is why symbolically in Mark's Gospel, the women are observing from a distance what's happening at the cross and why a few verses later it is those same women who enter into (laughs) enter into the tomb watch this they enter into the tomb hoping to find the body of Jesus the Nazarene which is why the angel in the tomb says, Are you looking for Jesus? He did not say, Are you looking for the Christ? Because when they entered into his tomb, the body of Christ was there, present in three women. You are the body of Christ, and members in particular, and so... They thought they could hide themselves at a distance, but when the process is fully over, those that were hiding enter into and become what He was. For John says, as He is, so are we in this world. So the reason Jesus didn't appear bodily in the sepulcher was because He wanted them to realize that they too We're the body of Christ. So that they experience their own resurrection when they lose the sense of alienation and separation and dualism and come into the tomb and realize what's true of him is also true of them. See Now this is... Like my favorite thing here. Uh, maybe a, did I turn it off? So, so, I need my, I need my pointer. Okay, can you guys see this? This is really important. And I have to thank Tiana and Samantha for showing this to me because I did a teaching along these lines. I didn't even know this was here. This is an ancient Christian icon. If you look at the ancient paintings, you see symbolism. That I'm going to point out to you in a minute. Where did they crucify Jesus? What was it called? The place of the skull, the of the skull right? So can you see this here? Down at the bottom, you see what that is? It's a skull, right? What's it surrounded by? Mm, before the dirt, darkness, and then what? Dirt or earth? Earth. So you have a skull that is dead. Surrounded by darkness, entombed in the earth. Then you have an ascension. Because what is this? It's a halo. What is this? What is this? What are these? What are they looking at? And what is Jesus doing? Because when he dies, what does he do? He gives up his spirit. (laughs) Hmm. What is the halo? Consciousness. But what is it in the painting? What is this down here? Yeah, but what's around the skull? What's around the Or dare I say, lest I be cursed as a New Age heretic, enlightenment. You see it? So the cross is about coming out of the darkness of consciousness and ascending through the lower realms (laughs) to the higher realms of enlightenment where the angels are, where the other dimensions are. So the issue is not, watch this, even if I hide myself in the dark, the darkness is what? As light to you. What's he realizing? He's actually coming to an enlightened place where he realizes that God is everywhere and separation from God and even hiding from God is impossible. And right after he says that, he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That my soul knows full well. He did not say, in sin I was conceived and I'm rotten to the core. That's down here. <laughs> These, what are the ancients trying to tell you? So watch the symbolism. So what happens at noon? Darkness covers the face of the earth, right? So in that moment, what happens? Jesus descends into Hades. Or into, if you will, the consciousness that is unenlightened. And what does he cry out? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He enters in to the darkness of separation. Or rather, the darkness of the illusion of separation and forsakenness. He enters into, if you will, the sufferings of Job. He enters into, if you will, the hiding of Adam who is afraid of the presence of God, not because God is coming in judgment because of what Adam has done, but because Adam's perceptions have been darkened at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he has tasted death, which is why it is a skull. (laughs) So death, is. look, God said the moment you eat of it, the day you eat of it, you'll die. But Adam didn't die. He didn't die physically, and he wasn't separated from the presence of God. He hid himself in the tra- from the presence of God, and, he, and, and when he heard God, he was afraid, and so he hid himself. So he projected his own image of good and evil onto God, and was distorted by darkness and fallenness and death to misunderstand the divine, to misunderstand the nature of the divine. Not Nothing ever says that God was coming in the sound of impending judgment and doom to deal with Adam. It's not in the text, it's not in the story, any more than there's a devil in the text or the story. You can't, you have to impose the person of the devil upon the serpent. The In the text, the serpent is identified as the wisest of all the creatures that God had created. And so what it begins to show us is not that there's some devil trying to take man into captive, but that we have to beware of that which sounds like wisdom and looks like enlightenment for us, but is actually coming from the realms beneath, from the realms of darkness. And so what happened to Adam was that his consciousness, because he ate at a tree that God said you're not supposed to eat at, his consciousness descended into death, into darkness, hiding. And then the Bible says God made skins for Adam and put him. The other problem, mess up your Sunday school, you think Eden, you think paradise is a place that exists in the physical dimensions of the earth. When your same Bible tells you, Jesus tells you in Revelation, to him overcomes, I will give of the right to eat of the tree in the midst of paradise, which is the tree of life. So where's the tree of life in paradise? Where did Paul get caught up to when he got caught up to the third heaven? Paradise. So it's not. And where is heaven? So Adam did not have a purely physical existence. The dust of the ground was his link to the earth. But it was he wasn't entombed in his body. He wasn't encased in a body, if you want to get right down to it. So, it does not say, this is why careful reading of the text is important, it does not say he gave, he made animal skins and covered his nakedness. Doesn't say he killed an animal. I mean, we think God has this bloodlust, like God has to shed blood every time there's sin, so Adam sinned, so he had to slay an animal, but you, you, you're not reading the text. The text says he made a garment of skin and covered Adam and Eve with it. So what did he do? He gave them flesh and blood, or he, he they became entombed in the earth. Or the consciousness of death is in darkness and can't see anything other than physical reality. Trapped in matter, which then becomes what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, this temple <laughs> has to be destroyed so that it can be listened to the language raised up after three days. Well, maybe you'd rather go back to your angry God who has to commit cosmic child abuse In order to feel better about you. Help yourself. Now here's the thing the people who are contemplating this are entering into the same experience. When you behold, you become Are you breathing? All right, last part of this, you ready? This is where Yeah. What is that? It's a pineal gland, but what's it surrounded by? A skull. Where was Jesus crucified? The pineal gland has a very interesting history that goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. The pineal gland was so important to the ancient Egyptians that they would extract it and mummify it separately. Just because ancient people were ancient doesn't mean they didn't know anatomy. Are you breathing? So when you're being told that the crucifixion happened at the place of the Skull. skull... God's not playing games with you. God put that little gland in there. It comes from its shape. It's very tiny, about the size of a small almond. But it's shaped like a pine cone. And it's embedded in the very deepest part or central part of your brain. I'm about to tell you. (laughs) I'm about to tell you. Which is where you get pine. Pineal. Pine cone. Got it? has a very significant place. The main thing science will tell you that it does is it secretes, it's where melatonin is secreted into your body. Now most of you probably know you can buy melatonin supplements, whatever, on. Right? And what does it help you do? Sleep, right? Helps your body shut down. And what happens to your consciousness when the body goes to sleep? You dream, but can we just say it? Your consciousness leaves your body. Unless your dream is taking place in your circulatory system, or your dream is taking place in the darkness of your room, your consciousness, you're somewhere else, baby. I mean, you ever had a dream you woke up from? You're like, oh my god, was that real? Wasn't that real? I'm not sure. Uh (laughs) Where are you at? You're no longer entombed. How does your pineal gland know to secrete melatonin? It gets dark which is why watching TV or looking at your screen all day long can make it hard for you to sleep because your body doesn't know to start producing melatonin. Melatonin has other functions as well. It's a precursor to serotonin. Serotonin is the feel-good stuff that you get that you take drugs for now if you're depressed. SSRIs. The S is for serotonin. Got it? So it helps you feel good. Heaven. The other thing that it does is it fights cancer. The other thing that it does is stimulate human growth hormone and anti-aging. The other thing that it is is it's a precursor and a releaser of a drug that's too long and big for me to say but its initials are dmt anybody ever heard of dmt all right dmt is a hallucinogen that can be found in almost every plant but higher doses of certain plants which means it works like lsd or magic mushrooms but the duration of the effects are much shorter so They call it the businessman's trip. What does a hallucinogen do? A hallucinogen does a couple different things. It distorts your senses. It distorts your physical reality. So you can see all kinds of crazy stuff, or so I'm told. The other thing that it can do is open up spiritual dimensions, the problem is you're still in the dark. So oftentimes the dimensions that get opened up aren't very pleasant. So you can have a bad trip. Some, some researchers refer to DMT as the spirit chemical. Because it releases actually your senses from darkness in order to perceive other experiences and dimensions of reality. Are you breathing? Now here's the interesting thing. The same thing happens when you start to meditate. When you start to meditate, what do you do? Close your eyes. What happens when you close your eyes? Comes dark. What happened when Jesus was crucified? So the ascension process always begins in the dark. When it gets quiet, it begins to release more melatonin. When you get into a very high state of meditation where delta brainwaves are operating, you're operating at what's called a beta brainwave, which is very short and fast. That's why your mind's going, singing songs, commenting. Right Alpha is when you're watching TV, driving in your car and you just kind of zoned out daydreaming. It's a longer wave. Theta, an even longer wave. What are you doing in theta? You're dreaming. Delta, an even longer wave. And guess what happens in Delta? Your body starts to secrete micro doses of DMT that comes from the pineal gland. So ancient spiritual traditions going all the way back to Egypt say that the pineal gland is the bridge between spirit and matter. So that very literally, if you're going to have a halo, (laughs) then the crucifixion has to take place in your skull. And so ancient, very, very, very ancient traditions would say that when you go into meditation, what's happening is the energy, you're withdrawing your energy from matter from the physical material world and you are sending it through the spinal cord directly to the pineal gland in order to activate it to do what it's supposed to do which is to open your spiritual senses to the realms beyond so that literally you become a cross that can ascend and descend. Hmm. Well, when you you can get to a place, she said for yourself or others, but you can get to a place where there is no other. a unitive consciousness where you realize if I do it to you I'm actually doing it to me. Therefore I'm now able from a higher level of consciousness to love my neighbor as myself. I'm able to enter into a mystical state where God is not an other because that is the place of union. And Jesus said, in that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So actually, Jesus said the goal of the spiritual life, the whole reason the Holy Spirit came was to lead you and guide you into all truth. It's funny, I'm going to get on soapbox for a minute. But Jesus did not say, I have many things to say to you, so therefore I'm going to send you the Apostle Paul. And he will write letters that become a book that then will lead you and guide you into all truth. He did not say, I will send you a book. He said, I'll send you another teacher, another helper, another comforter, meaning that's what he was. I will send someone who will take my place, and he will be with you, and he will be in you. But you have Christian leaders from the guy in Saddleback, you know, the purpose-driven life, one of the first things in the purpose-driven life, don't go with me. Jesus said, the spirit of truth, where are you going to find truth? He'll be with you. And he'll be in you, and in that day, you will realize what's the truth he's supposed to lead you into. Whether one saved or always saved is true. Whether speaking in tongues is, you have to speak in tongues, don't speak in tongues. Whether whether hell's for eternity or just for duration. Whether whether um, whether the mechanics of the atonement is this or is that. That's how we act. No, the truth He will lead you into is a ontological truth. That's a very big word that means the nature of things. The nature of reality. He will show you the nature of reality. And in that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. In other words, there is no other for Jesus. There's only... Thank you. There's only unity. Now watch what he says. He didn't say, in that day it will become... He said, in that day you will realize. So it's about the realization of what's really going on. It's about the realization of what's really true. <laughs> so that you come out of, watch this, and I'm done. You come out of, my God, my God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you ascend to the place of, even in my pain and death, into, my, into thy hands I commit my spirit, and you give up your spirit. And now you have a launching pad for which to launch your consciousness into the realm of unity, union with God, heavenly realities, which the angels participate in, which the painting is showing us, is available to those who will contemplate the cross. Oh, and by the way, the term contemplation comes from temple. Con, with, with the temple. Your temple is what? It's your body. So what the church calls contemplation is what we call meditation. So you cannot come out of darkness and into light if you do not develop a form of meditation. That's your crucifixion. I'll give you one last little tidbit. We may pick this up next time. Who carried the cross? Uh, Come on. Who carried it? Simon. Blessed art, now it wasn't Peter, but watch this. Blessed art you, Simon. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What's the name Simon mean? One who hears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. We'll have to talk about it later. You're, you're confusing me. We'll have to talk about it later. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what you're saying. But, yeah, Simon means to hear. I mean, you're not confusing me. I'm getting confused. <laughs> Sorry, because my mind's going one way. and means one who hears. Think about it. Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for the power of your word, the power of your cross. Lord, we pray for enlightenment, for the rising of divine energy that is within us to the place of the skull, to the place of the pineal gland, to the place where the sun rises and never sets. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for delivering us from darkness and lies, bringing us into the light of truth, the light of actual reality and oneness. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.